Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Pause. That's a good thing, by the way, in that culture. Um, That's a sign of wealth. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. This is a psalm about dealing with doubt. Dealing with doubt. Doubt is something that many followers of Jesus Christ are afraid of. How many of you have seen uh, the movie entitled Doubt? It starred uh, Meryl Streep and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Amy Adams and Viola Davis. It's about 10 or so year old movie, brilliant movie. And uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays a priest in the film whose name is Father Flynn, who is new as a principal of the parish school uh, in the Bronx in New York City. And uh, Meryl Streep plays a longstanding nun named Sister Alocious, who teaches at the same school and has been there for decades. And Sister Alocious throughout the film, has a suspicion about Father Flynn. She suspects him to not be what he claims to be. And in fact, specifically, she claims that he has mistreated and abused one of the young children in the school. And she convinces herself as the film progresses that she's right in her suspicion, uh, despite only a very small amount of corroborating evidence 
And, and in one scene, as the, the climax of the movie approaches, she uh, goes into the office of Father Flynn and she confronts him about uh, the accusation she's making. And it's really just a brilliantly acted scene. And Hoffman's character, Father Flynn, says, you have no proof of this. And Meryl Streep, Sister Elocious, grabs her crucifix necklace and says, I have my certainty. I have my certainty. Eventually, she gets Father Flynn to resign, and he leaves the school for another post. And the film concludes with Sister Aloysius sitting on a bench on a snowy winter day at the school with another younger nun, Sister Adams, uh, excuse me, Sister James, played by Amy Adams. And they're discussing what had happened with Father Flynn, and, and Sister Aloysius admits That she had made up a part of her story that got him fired. Because she was so certain that her suspicions were correct. That she would have done whatever was necessary to be rid of him. And then there's this moment of silence where it's super tense. And then Sister Aloysius breaks down and begins to weep and weep. And she utters through her tears, I have such doubts. I have so many doubts. And the movie ends. Now, among other things, it's a film attempting to create dialogue about the issue of certainty versus doubt. And one of the things that the film does, I think, so well is portray for us how religious people often view doubt. Namely, that it is something to be avoided at all costs. Streep's character was so afraid of doubt that it crushed her. Some of you may fear doubt too. Some of us think that doubt and belief are mutually exclusive all the time. Listen, my friends, that is not true. Um, Doubt is a part of the spiritual journey For almost every single one of us. And doubt can be a good thing. It isn't always, but it can be. And this psalm teaches us how. We're concluded, as I mentioned, this summer teaching series, reading through various psalms. And uh, next week, we're going to begin our fall series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And I always love studying the Psalms. They're unique in providing us uh, sort of a full palette of human experience and emotion before God. And um, this ancient hymnal that we call the Psalms teaches us in so many ways. And I hope you've seen that this summer. How to, how to process our lives before our loving Father. And um, we can divide this Psalm, which is really about doubt and belief into two big headings. Uh, First, wrestling with doubt, and second, moving past doubt. So let's look at this part of God's word together. First, wrestling with doubt. Um, It's relatively normal in the Christian experience to wrestle with doubt. So if you're a Christian and you're afraid of doubt, let me just tell you right now, you can be disabused of that notion. It's relatively normal. Why do you say that, Luke? Well, look at the psalm. It's written by a man named Asaph. Uh, That's what we see in the very first line. And Asaph, we know from other parts of the Old Testament, was the chief musician of ancient Israel's temple choir when he lived. He was, in other words, a highly influential spiritual leader in Israel. 
He was a mature and gifted man among the people of God. And what's happening to Asaph? This mature, highly spiritual, influential leader is almost overwhelmed with deep doubts. He admits his struggles. And so right away we see anyone, anyone can have doubts. Now, doubt is not always a good thing, of course. There's a secular narrative about doubt that says basically doubt's always good and that we should question everything all the time, especially if it's not something that's provable by the scientific method or via our physical senses. I find that, frankly, to be really naive and also unhelpful. But there's also a religious narrative about doubt that I've already mentioned that says ever to have doubt is scary and wrong. And again, that's simply not true. Here in this psalm, Asaph writes about how deep his doubts were about God's goodness. But he also says, listen, that those doubts ended up leading him to a deeper spiritual relationship with and trust in the God of the Bible, his father. Who's the most famous doubter in the Bible? Thomas. You remember the story of Thomas? If you're familiar with the Gospels, Thomas, I guess he missed the meeting where Jesus in his resurrected body shows up. And so the disciples say, hey, Thomas, Jesus has come back to life. And what does Thomas say? No way. I don't buy it. I want to touch. He's a scientist. I want to touch the place where the nails went into his hands. And of course, Jesus appears to Thomas and works through Thomas's doubt with him. And at the end of John's gospel, Thomas makes the strongest profession of faith of anyone in any of the gospels. He looks at Jesus and calls him my Lord and my God. That's the only time any other human has that strong of a confession about Jesus. He calls him my God. It's similar with Asaph. He works through his doubt. He wrestles with it to get to a deeper place of faith. So what is Asaph's issue? Well, let's look. Look at how he describes his interior life. Verse 1. He makes a confession of faith. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. Now, by the way, pure in heart doesn't mean sinless. Pure in heart's a way of the Old Testament talking about those who are fully committed to God. And he's making a, a theologically accurate doctrinal statement here. God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. And even though Asaph believes that in his head, his heart is struggling. Look at what he says next. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That is a metaphor for doubt. Tim Keller, I heard, described doubt as spiritual vertigo. Or spiritual dizziness. It's what happens. Doubt is what happens. When what you believe in your head with what you profess to be true comes into conflict and doesn't match up with your life experience. Let me say that again. Doubt is what happens when what you believe in your head, when what you profess to be true, when what you may know is true doesn't line up with your experience in life. And it makes you feel dizzy. Some of you know one of my favorite singer-songwriters is a guy named Jason Isbell. And he's got a new record out this year, which is wonderful. It's called Weather Banes. And in one of the songs, uh, the song's called White Beretta, he has this little line where he says, If his love is unconditional, why do I feel so miserable? 
His, of course, is a, response, a reference to God. If, if God's love is unconditional, why do I feel so miserable? That's a perfect description of doubt. It's what Asaph was dealing with. He's struggling. He's spinning like a top. He's experiencing disequilibrium. Have any of you ever felt that way? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, see how the Bible really resonates with our real lives. So why is Asaph feeling this way? What is the deal with his doubt? Here's where we get into the meat of the song. Look with me. He gives two reasons why he's doubting. First, he's doubting that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, because he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, to put it very simply, he's frustrated that good things keep happening to bad people. The Bible's problem isn't why do bad things happen to good people? It's why do good things happen to bad people? That's Asaph's issue here. And then he plays it out in verses 4 through 12. He says, the wicked get away with everything, with all kinds of evil and wrongdoing. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. They threaten opposition. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? In other words, I'm not going to get caught. Is there knowledge in the Most High? And also, Asaph feels like things go a lot better in this life for evil people than they do for good people of which he would say he is one. Verse 12, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 4, they have no pangs, no problems until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, wealthy, solid, good. Remember that saying, crime never pays? That's just not true. (laughs) Don't take me out of context. Crime often does pay. That's very obvious throughout life. My oldest uh, started high school this week. He's a freshman in high school now, and uh, I found myself remembering my first week of high school. And uh, one thing I learned really quickly in my first week of high school at Amarillo High School, the Golden Sandstorm, um, is that sometimes the meanest jerks in the class seem to get it all. The best athlete in our class was a guy named Brent Bullard. I hope he doesn't listen to this sermon recording. I doubt it, highly. Um, Brent was the high school quarterback. He was the point guard on the basketball team. He was a starting pitcher. And you know what else he was? He was a jerk. He was a huge jerk. He was mean. He was rude. He was a bully. He didn't love God at all. But guess what? He had, I'm sure this is going to shock you, a lot of popularity, a lot of money, a lot of girls. He had favor with the teachers, especially those coaches who happened to coach history in public high schools in my day. He had everything, and it drove me crazy. Doesn't basically every high school movie have this same theme? Nice guys finish last. That's Asaph's issue. Don't we all see this? We see it at the highest levels of finance. Wall Street is full of wolves. And we see it at every level of social life in every school in the world. By the way, if you put your kids in a Christian school, you're not protecting them from this. It's in every school, everywhere. And it's frustrating. That's what Asaph's feeling. The second reason he has doubt is because he's believing that striving for holiness is futile. Look at what he says. 
Not only do the wicked seem to be able to oppress people and get away with it, but verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's, he's attempted to be a good Levite, a good priest. He's pursuing holiness. We could say he's following Jesus. He's doing what is right, even when it's hard. And what's he gotten out of it? He's thinking, not much. It's all in vain. In fact, it's led to verse 14. All day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And he's tired of thinking about it. Verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. You ever feel this way? It's okay to be nodding internally or externally even. You don't have to follow Jesus Christ for long before that feeling or something like it hits. You're working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as the scriptures tell us. You're trying to be faithful. You're trying to put sin to death, as Romans 8 says, and and live for righteousness, just like Jesus asked us to. And what sometimes happens? Sometimes, internally, you just don't feel like God really cares. You don't feel like he's really that interested in you because life is still a slog. You're struggling with money. You're struggling with your family. You're feeling lonely. You're overwhelmed. Where are you, God? I thought you said you loved me, God. Is this even worth it? If that's an experience you're familiar with, you're joining one of the writers of Scripture. Asaph is no spiritual slouch. Doubts come when what we know to be true doesn't match up with what we experience in our lives. So what do we do? We can't stay in this place. It will eat us alive. It will hollow us out from the inside. We have to move past doubt. And I want to spend the rest of our time, the next couple of minutes, showing you how Asaph did it and how, with God's help, we can do it too. So we've seen him wrestling wrestling with doubt. Secondly, we see moving past doubt. Asaph writes in the psalm about his wrestling, but also about how God helped him. So let me give you four things, okay, and then we'll be done that the psalm teaches, that God teaches about moving past doubt. Four things under this heading of moving past doubt. First, enter the sanctuary. Enter the sanctuary. The hinge of the entire psalm is in verse 17. Look there. You see the word until? Really important word. He doesn't even want to think about it anymore. Until. I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discern their end. What is going on here? Going into the sanctuary in the Old Testament could only have meant one thing. It means that Asaph is entering the temple and worshiping with God's people. That was the turn for him. Think of it this way. Things begin to change for Asaph in his doubt When he began to turn to God as an object of worship and not an object of speculation. Things began to turn for Asaph when he looked to God as an object of worship, not an object of speculation. Now, listen, I've said a few times already that doubt isn't always bad, and that is absolutely true. It can be a way to grow in your faith, to wrestle through doubts. But doubt can become sinister, 
when it leads to posturing ourselves towards God as his judge. As if we know better than he knows how to run our lives. That's why Asaph is saying worship is so helpful. Worship is about encountering the real God, the only God in all of who he is and reverently bowing before his awesome power and glory and majesty. And God is so patient and kind with us that he allows people in and through Jesus to approach him even in a posture of doubt with the hope that their doubt will turn to worship when they look at God and realize how much bigger, stronger, wiser, and kinder he is than we are. You know, the best example of this in the Bible is the book of Job. The entire book, really, is one huge example of this exact issue. Job has, well, a lot of bad things happen to him, and he's a really good guy. God says he's a really good guy. And his buddies theologize him into oblivion throughout the whole book. And finally, Job is just finished. He's had enough, and he says, show up, God. It's time for you to answer me. And guess what? God does but not exactly in the way Job had wanted. In, in verse, uh, verse 1 of Job 38, let me, let me just read this. God, by the way, gives Job three chapters of response, and here's how he opens. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Okay, pause. In the top five list of things I don't want God to ever say to me, that's got to be way up there. <laughs> Right? Dress for action like a man. Put on your big boy pants. That's the Luke standard version. Put on your big boy pants. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Job hears and sees God for who he is and ends up in Job 41 repenting and believing. He says, I uttered things I did not know. One of the great things about God, listen, if you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with Christianity, one of the great things I want you to know about God is that he loves us so much that we can question him with honesty in our frustrations. Okay, listen, he loves us so much that we can question him with honesty in our frustrations, but at the same time, he's sovereign over us. So we cannot judge him with arrogance. He loves us, and you can question him and bring your honest doubts and struggles to him. But you cannot place God in the dock, as my buddy Jack Lewis used to put it. Enter the sanctuary. Remember who God is. Submit and humble yourself before him. That helps you move through doubt. Now, if we had that alone, that actually might kind of discourage some of you. Um, but Asaph gives more. He says, enter the sanctuary. That's the first way to move through doubt. Secondly, confess your envy. Second, uh, we have to admit that our doubts are always crouched in a mixture of motives. Okay, think about this with me. Doubt, we like to think that doubt is like an intellectual struggle. Doubt is never, ever only an intellectual struggle. And by the way, neither is faith. 
faith is not only an intellectual struggle either. Um, We like to think God and his ways don't make sense, so I cannot accept him or believe in him. Uh, But doubt doesn't work like that. And uh, Asaph is honest about it. Uh, Aldous Huxley was a, a, a novelist. He wrote his most famous work is Brave New World. He's also was uh, not a Christian. He was a, an avowed, committed atheist. And he did a lot of writing and interviewing about his religious commitments or his lack thereof. And, and one of the things I appreciate about Huxley is that he was brutally honest about it. He basically said, listen, I'm not an athe- atheist because I can't be convinced that there is a God. That's, that's what he said. I'm not an atheist because no one can intellectually persuade me. I'm an atheist because I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be a God. Because if there is a God, I have to not do what I want all the time. I can't have sex with whoever I want. That's what he says. And if there is a God, then I am liable to someone other than myself. who would be in charge of me and, and I can't handle that. So he admits flat out that his atheism is not just based in some intellectual argument against God's existence. It's based in a heart condition that's turned away from him. His motives are mixed. That's the point. Look at what Asaph says. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant. Verse 21, my soul was embittered. I was bitter. When I was pricked in heart, he's beginning to realize what was really happening to him. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. What's happening? Asaph is saying that part of the reason he's doubting is not because he hasn't received satisfactory intellectual answers to his questions. It's because he's jealous. That's why he's envious. He's bitter. He wanted what the wicked have. He wishes his life was like their life. Why can't I have more money? Why can't I have more fame? Why can't I have more beauty? Why does Brent Bullard get all the girls and I don't get any? A part of his doubt was rooted in good, old-fashioned self-centeredness. And he is able to honestly own and admit that, to confess it, and to repent of it. So sometimes, listen, sometimes viewing our surroundings and our situations and our circumstances takes us to a place of envy, of jealousy, of comparison. And we're not going to be able to move past doubt until we're convicted of that. Until we confess it and look to Jesus Christ in faith again for forgiveness. Enter the sanctuary, okay? Confess your envy. Third, reason through the promises. Reason through the promises. The psalm tells us more. It tells us that we move past out by encountering God in worship. Then I entered the sanctuary, but we also move past it through thoughtful belief. Look at the second half of that verse. Then I discerned their end, verse 17. Stick with me. Look at what Asaph writes later. Verse 18, truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And then finally, for behold, verse 27, those who were far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. What's Asaph doing? He's remembering what God tells us in his word. He's exercising faith. We use that verb exercising because sometimes it takes like an act of effort 
to trust God's promises, to trust that God knows more than we know. And specifically, he's reminding himself of the truth that God is a just judge. That's true. And that God is one day going to right every wrong. He's going to make everything new. In verse 11, the wicked say, how can God know? The wicked believe God is not going to punish them. Either because there is no God or because God doesn't care. In fact, if you believe that, you're banking your entire eternal destiny on that being true. But Asaph remembers and discerns and reasons that that, in fact, is not the case. God is just. God judges evil and wickedness because he's good and loving. He will not let the wicked get away forever with oppression Moving past doubt, reasons through these promises. Jesus makes this point in one of his parables, the parable of the weeds. He says, a guy comes along and sows seed. And we know the seed is people of the kingdom. But then an enemy comes and sows a bunch of weeds in the field too. And the weeds grow up with the seed of the field and they grow up together. And then Jesus makes a very important point. He didn't let the reapers go and pull all the weeds right away. He's content to let good and evil co-mingle in the world until he decides to deal with it. Why? We don't know why, but we're not God. He's God, and he's patient, but also just. Reasoning through the promises is another way of talking about what we talk about all the time, preaching the gospel to yourself. Part of the gospel is that Jesus Christ will come back one day, in triumph. Does anybody think that's good news? Jesus Christ one day is going to come back and he's going to make everything good and perfect and right and holy and just. And there's not going to be any more corruption. There's not going to be any more injustice. There's not going to be any more oppression. There's not going to be any more sickness or pain or evil or death. He's going to do it perfectly. And so Asaph's saying, we have to remind ourselves of the future work of Christ, just like we remind ourselves of the past work of Christ. His just and good love is going to win. When we doubt, we must believe that. And lastly, we move through doubt by remembering our treasure. Remember your treasure, verse 25 and 26. He worships God in the sanctuary. He confesses his own sin that implicates him. He reasons through gospel promises. But I think this might be the most important step. By faith, Asaph is able, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to remember where his real treasure is, or more appropriately put, who it is. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they are going to fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus of Nazareth put it like this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. When doubts come in and invade, we move past them by trusting that God is our portion, that God loves us, and that God receives us. We trust ultimately by doing what I call gospel calculus. I can't do real calculus, so I do gospel calculus. If God has given us that which is most valuable to him, especially when we were separated from him and hateful towards him. His own son, Jesus, 
And if God has offered Christ to crucifixion to atone for our rebellion, then surely we can't doubt that he will take care of us now. And in the end, that he will graciously give us all things. God is our treasure. As Paul puts it elsewhere, all things are ours and we are Christ's and Christ is God. So doubt comes into the Christian life. That's a part of the journey. We shouldn't fear doubt. But God's, with God's help, we can move through our doubt. As Asaph models for us in this psalm, we can come through them with fresh and humble eyes to trust and see in the God who has already given us that which is most valuable and who we can trust will finish what he has started, even when it's hard for us to see at times. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.